And the fight continues. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here, and this is Voice of Christian Israel. Today is December 19th, 2021. Only six more hectic shopping days <laughs> until Christmas. So better get out there and... Uh, uh, Get into the aisles and pick out your presents for everybody because you, oh, don't have much time left. Okay, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a pass, get a hold of Pastor Martins. So it looks like I'm going to have to go solo. I tried to call him twice, uh, no answer. And usually he does respond. Sometimes we have, uh, you know, difficulties with the sound, but uh, no, nothing at all today. No, no response whatsoever. So I'm hoping he's okay. No message to me about him not being available today. But uh, I'm going to continue on a theme that I started on this morning's show, and uh, the the idea that St. Paul has uh, contradicted the Old Testament, and we just touched, uh, we just scratched the surface on this article. But I'm going to read through it thoroughly because it it really illustrates how poorly the Bible has been translated and how certain words are absolutely crucial to get correct. Otherwise, you will not understand Scripture. It is quite that simple. If you don't have the correct definitions of words, then you cannot understand Scripture. And so the the, the Judeo-Christian world is in this mind fog, which is the expression I used this morning, a mind fog created by false definitions of words. Now, some of these false definitions crept in, not, not deliberately, but by accident. So when Jerome translated the Vulgate, he used the Latin word Gentile to translate uh, goyim from the Hebrew and ethnos from the Greek. And all three of the words actually mean nation. But the word Gentile specifically means a person of the same, same. Not different. Same race, tribe, or family. That's what the word Gentile means in Latin. It has always mean that. It has never meant anything else. However, Bible translations and uh, Jewish definitions of terms have crept into our language such that the word Gentile today means the exact opposite of what it meant when it was originally used by Jerome. Then it meant a person of the same race, tribe, or family. Today it means a non-Israelite, which is absolutely an abomination of a meaning, of a change in meanings. Totally abominable. And so I'm going to discuss this article from the standpoint of a person who has been totally flummoxed by false definitions. And the uh, title of the article is A Puzzler, Hosea 1, 10, and 2.23 in Romans 9, 25 through 26. So, and the author starts out very correctly uh, stating that uh, there's, there's a problem here. And why is there a problem? Well, first of all, the word Gentile doesn't belong in the Bible anyway. There no no translation of the Bible needs to contain that word, especially because it has so many conflicting definitions. That's why you have to go back to the original meaning of the original words in the Hebrew and the Greek. And if the translation, whether it be English, French, Latin, whatever, if the translation does not jive with the original meanings of the words that Paul used when he wrote, then you have a serious problem. That's why Judeo-Christianity is in this horrible mind fog where it simply cannot understand Scripture and accepts all kinds of contradictions that uh, are not really there. They're only there in the translations. They're not there in the original. Okay. And this article is by Jared Compton. We looked at Romans 9 last week, and of course I'm teaching on Paul. I'll admit we spent most of our time in chapters 9 through 11 working a bit too closely considering our time constraints through Paul's OT citations. Now, you cannot 
You cannot overdo Paul's Old Testament citations. This is absolutely crucial because virtually the entire output in Paul's writings is references back to the Old Testament and how they apply to the Christian Israelites of his day. That's why he cites the Old Testament, because he's not speaking to so-called Gentiles of other races, other nations, other tribes, other families. He is talking to Israelites. Depending on which epistle it is, sometimes he's talking to Judahites in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. Sometimes, as in the book of Romans, he's talking to Judahites and a few dispersed Israelites of the ten lost tribes, the ten exiled tribes that lived among them. And, of course, uh, some of these exiled Israelites filtered back into the Levant uh, during these days and were also present, but not too many of them. It was mainly the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who were present in the Levant or in what we call Palestine today. And uh, they were actually separated uh, by a country called, Gal- uh, no, not Galilee, the um, Samaria. They were separated by a country called Samaria. So Judah was to the south, Samaria was just to the north, and then Galilee, which was inhabited primarily by Benjaminites, was to the north of that. And th- these are the people and those scattered, these Judahites and uh, uh, exiled tribe Israelites, which he refers to as the dispersion, the dispersed Israelites, these are the only people that Paul is addressing in any of his epistles. He is not addressing his epistles to the rest of the world as people who falsely believe what this word Gentile means, believe. They simply believe a lie because this word has been given a false definition by the Jews to mean, for them anyway, non-Jews and for and these Christians, they take it to mean non-Israelites. That's an, ex- an extremely horrible proposition that causes so much confusion that you cannot calculate the amount of confusion that this lie, that, it, that the word Gentile means non-Israelite, has caused. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. So anyway, and it's amazing that this author, and this is by Jared Compton, And I'm not picking on Jared because this is a common problem in all of Judeo-Christianity. Virtually every so-called Christian in the world today outside of identity has no idea that the word Gentile is a horribly misdefined word and they're, they're operating for an entirely false premise on what or who a Gentile is. Okay, So that he continues to say, One of the more puzzling of these citations is found in Romans 9, verses 25 through 26, where Paul cites Hosea 2.23 and then Hosea 1.10. In Hosea, the my people who receive God's renewed mercy are, he says, Jews. No, that's another mistake, because the Jews and Judahites are not the same people. The word Jew comes from Judean, which means a resident or citizen of the country of Judea in the days that Yahshua walked the earth. That's what that means. It's not a racial word, whereas the term Judah and Judahite are racial terms referring exclusively to that tribe or a member of that tribe and nobody else. So the word Jew, however, is being used to refer to both Judahites and to that mixed-race population of Judea, most of whom were Edomites. So, in other words, the word Jew is supposed to refer to the pure-blooded tribe of Judah and our worst enemies, the Edomites, all at the same time. You see how much confusion there is in just these two words alone? So, we go by the modern definition of the word Jew. A Jew is what a Jew is. And a Jew is a non-Israelite. The simplest definition of Jew I can give you is that a a Jew is a non-Israelite pretending to be an Israelite. And we know who those are. (laughs) The fake Jews or the fake Judahites, more correctly. Okay. And every one of these Judeo-Christians, including 
Mr. Compton, acknowledges the fact that in the Old Testament, only Israel is being addressed by Yahweh, only Israel is addressed by the prophets, etc., etc. The Old Testament, they all agree. No one disagrees with us that the Old Testament is addressed exclusively to Israel and no one else. So how in the world can the New Testament be addressed to non-Israelites, especially when you're citing Old Testament citations, which are obviously made to Israel? Well, the problem occurs because of these two words, Jew and Gentile. So he says, in Hosea, the my people who receive God's renewed mercy are, he he should say, Israelites. In Romans, they're so-called Gentiles. Has Paul misread the Bible? Perhaps you've wondered the same thing. No, Paul has not misread the Bible. Somebody has put words into his mouth. Namely, these two words, Jew and Gentile. With their modern definitions, you cannot possibly make sense of the Bible. That should be Judahites and dispersed Israelites. That's what we're talking about. And Mr. Compton has no concept that this is the reality. He says further, I don't plan to offer a full resolution to this one here. I'm not sure I even could. Yeah, he can't, not with his misunderstanding of these words. However, I did want to offer three reflections on the problem. Okay, let's go. One, the problem is real. Yeah, when you have a contradiction in terms, when the Old Testament addresses verses to Israel and the New Testament apparently addresses non-Israel, you do have a real problem. This is a real problem. But it amazes me that none of these Judeo-Christians ever question the definitions they've been given. It never occurs to them. Not even to the theologians. The theologians simply say, well, the modern definition must must be the same as the ancient definition. And all you have to do is look up the words in a concordance and you'll find that that, that isn't true. But they never bother to look at their concordances. Or they just listen to their theologians, who are very often nothing but apostates, and they never read the Bible for themselves. At least Mr. Compton is reading the Bible for himself and trying to make sense out of a contradictory set of verses. Let me assure you right here now, the Bible does not contradict itself. It's only the translations that contradict the Bible. Okay, uh, Bram is saying that David will contact via satellite. Uh, I'm not getting any sort of contact from Pastor Martins at all. So anyway, uh, we'll just have to, uh, you know, press forward here. So uh, let's continue with the article. Thanks for letting me know, Bram. All right, so yeah, I was hoping that uh, certain verses, uh, I I wanted him to read the the Dietz or Afrikaans translation to see how much they agree with the modern uh, King James and uh, most all other modern translations have the same false definitions of Jew and Gentile in, in their versions. So it's a, it's a universal problem among all translations. That's why we must go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and get the proper definitions before we can possibly analyze what's going on here. So, it's very clear, and Mr. Uh, let's see, Compton admits that in the Old Testament, in Hosea, the people being referred to are Israelites. But then he assumes that Paul contradicts Hosea and says, no, uh, the promises which remain exclusively to Israel now devolve upon the entire world, or non-Israelites. Okay, so... This is absolutely crazy. You know, in other words, you're saying, Mr. Compton, that you accept contradictory language in Scripture. You're saying that the Bible contradicts itself, and you're fine with that. You need to dig a lot deeper. Now, number two, he says, Paul uses the citations to prove Gentile inclusion. 
He does? Just the only reason Mr. Compton believes that is because of the false definition of the word Gentile that he is working with. First of all, the word Gentile doesn't belong in Scripture at all. It should never have been included. That's Jerome's fault. But but you really can't blame him for that because for him, the word Gentile meant an Israelite, (laughs) a person of the same race driver family. That's what it meant to Jerome. So if Mr. Compton did a little historical research about the meanings of words and how the, the definitions of words change over time, sometimes just by change of usage by common people, sometimes by deliberate deception. And this word Gentile, being given the word meaning anti or non-Jewish, is a deliberate deception, an absolutely deliberate deception that uh, Judeo-Christians fall for Jew lies. That's the bottom line. There's no way the, the word Gentile means non-Israelite. It has never had that meaning until very recent times. And we have the Jews to thank for that. Okay? So, so he says Paul uses citations to prove Gentile inclusion. No, he doesn't prove anything. Nor does he say any such thing. And, 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 not, and not Gentile replacement of Israel. So what Mr. Compton is arguing is a version of replacement theology. And replacement theology is very common among Judeo-Christians who believe that because the Jews, first of all, they make a false assumption that the Jews are Israelites. And that because the Jews rejected Christ, therefore the promises devolved to some other group, namely the Gentiles, because the Jews rejected Christ. No, the Jews were never his people. (laughs) The Israelites were his people. And yes, some Israelites did reject him. In fact, most of them did reject him. But that does not change the terms of the covenants to whom the covenants and promises and the glory apply, and Paul never argues otherwise. It's just this word Gentile that's been inserted into the translations that makes Mr. Compton believe that. So he's saying, okay, well, it's not that Israel is replaced by the Gentiles. It's that the Gentiles are included among the Israelites. It's just a, a subtle nuance change in uh, theology here that he is claiming. All right? So, no, Israel has never been replaced, and no other group of people have been included with Israel in the covenants. Remember, Yahshua said, I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, Cast ye not pearls before swine, lest they turn again and rend you. When we try to convert non-Israelites to our religion, to our faith, we are casting pearls before swine. We are not to do that. And he told the Canaanite woman, I cannot give you the children's bread. Which means, I cannot give you that which belongs to the children of Israel. I mean, the New Testament is full of sayings like that if you would just simply pay attention. But the word Gentile has flummoxed, has mind-fogged so many Christians who really, they do want to know the truth. But there's no way they can know the truth if they can't get past these false definitions. He continues as part of his argument. First, considering the question Paul sets out to answer in chapters 9-11 through 11, has God's word to Israel failed? Well, no, it hasn't. Israel has failed. But Yahweh's word to Israel never fails. And nowhere does his word include non-Israelites in any of the covenants, promises, etc. He continues, It is unlikely that he would prove that God's word hadn't failed by appealing to texts originally speaking about Israel's promised restoration to vindicate his Gentile mission. Number one, Paul does not have a Gentile mission. 
He is the apostle to the nations. What nations? The Israelite nations. Because that's all the word ethnos in the Greek means. It simply means nations. And he is addressing the same people that Hosea addressed and none other. Again, you see how this word Gentile and its false definition has utterly distorted Mr. Compton's thinking to the point he will never understand Scripture because of this false definition. Such a subtle, small change that this word, this one word, has totally destroyed the ability of 99.9% of Christians to understand the Bible and to falsely believe that they are Gentiles and the Jews are Israel. This false definition is all that it took for the Jews to flummox an entire race of people. He continues, To be sure, Paul begins the section noting that election depends on grace, not race. According to Mr. Compton, Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. So, let's go there. Let's go to Romans chapter 9 and see if his assessment is at all justified by the words of Paul. So, let's start with Romans chapter 9. And let's set the context by reading verse 1. And it says this, I say the truth in Yahshua, or in Messiah, I lie, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now remember, Yahshua said, I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the exiled sheep of the house of Israel. And he, Paul is saying, I preach the same message that he preached. I teach absolutely nothing different. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Me too. Me too, because I see all these flummox Judeo-Christians running around having no comprehension of the word whatsoever. None. They're like inmates in an insane asylum that they call Christianity. Verse 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying here, I wish that I would suffer on their behalf so they could wake up and see what I'm trying to tell them. Okay, Now these people did not have the word Gentile on their minds. He addressed them as Israelites because they were Israelites, which is something that Mr. Compton simply does not understand. Okay, there's no place in this gospel that he says otherwise. Okay, yes, nimble horse, study to show thyself approved. And Mr. Compton, to his credit, is trying. He's trying to understand. He's, he is studying. But if, you, if your dictionary gives you false definitions of words, and all of the theologians that you've been brought up to listen to use these false definitions, then I can't blame you for not understanding. I simply can't blame you for not understanding. But I have to say, come on now. Do you really believe that the Bible contradicts itself? I mean, that's what he's saying. He says there is a real problem here. There's a contradiction here. Oh, let's forget about it. <laughs> let's just ignore this contradiction and pretend that we understand about No. If you have a contradiction, that contradiction must be resolved. And the only way to resolve that contradiction is to do the word studies. Find out what these words really mean in the original language when Paul wrote them down, when he spoke them. If you do not have that concept in your mind, because anybody can translate somebody else's work and totally distort what that author has said. And that's what has been done to the works of Paul. His words have been utterly distorted by the translators and by the Jews. There's absolutely no doubt about this. So let's go back. Verse 4. 
Actually, let me, uh, verse 3 again, because it's very important what he says here. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Yahshua, for my brethren, brethren, okay, Adelphos, from the same womb, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my physical kinsmen. We share the same DNA of the Adamic species. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Paul is saying here. So I, I wish that I would bear the uh, the uh, curse that is upon my people Israel for them so that they would understand. So these first three verses, there's nothing Paul says here that contradicts Hosea or the covenant message in any way, shape, or form. In fact, he asserts that he is speaking to people who are of exactly the same race as he is. Number four, who are Israelites? Any problem there? Who are Israelites? Not Gentiles. To whom pertaineth? Now, now here's a really bad word. <laughs> okay. We didn't talk about this one this morning. Adoption. No. That word does not mean to adopt. It, it's euthesia. And the definition given by Strong's is to the placing as of a son. Okay? So you have to be a son before you can be placed. This has nothing to do with adoption, which can be construed to mean adopting people of other races. It has no such meaning whatsoever. Okay? Let me read it directly. Heuthesia, the placing as a son. That And here, here's where the deception comes in. That is adoption. Figuratively, Christian sonship in respect to God, whatever that means, that doesn't mean anything. Adoption of children of sons. Okay? No. The word heuthesia means to place as a son. Okay? Paul is talking about when you come of age, then you inherit when you come of age. He's not talking about, and nor does this verse imply at all that non-Israelites can be adopted for anything because, as he says right here, to whom pertaineth the sonship, which is the correct translation, and the glory and the covenants, just as Hosea said and all the Old Testament has said, and the giving of the law, was the law given to any other people but Israel? And the service of God and the promises. Paul has done nothing here but confirm the covenant message 100%. But this word adoption is a bad translation of heuthesia. It should be sonship or the inheritance, the heritability of the covenants by the children of Israel. That's what Paul means here. Verse 5. Whose are the fathers? Yeah, well, the fathers of whom? The Israelites to whom he's speaking. The covenants, the promises, the inheritance, the service, the glory. All these things pertain only to Israel. And Paul is not saying anything different. Again, he brings the racial aspect in. Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, the flesh, the race, your DNA race, your line of descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahshua came. Was was Yahshua promised to any other people than Israel? Mr. Compton should be asking himself these questions as he's reading, because the answer there is no. These promises were not given to any other people besides Israel. 
So what is the source of the confusion, Mr. Compton? The confusion is in your own mind because you have false definitions of words and that these definitions have been planted into you by your worst enemy. The seed of Cain. This is why the two seed line message is so important. You have to understand that this enmity predicted in Genesis chapter 3 still pertains to us today and our people are still subject to it and miserably miserably suffering because of it. So let me repeat, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, because he is a direct flesh descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course David, Yahshua came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. So these first five verses, Paul does nothing but confirm the covenant message. He does not contradict it in any way. Now the verses that Mr. Compton claims that Paul has given a quote-unquote Gentile meaning to. Verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now this is obviously one of the most confusing statements that Paul ever made in, in his epistles. And it's something that really needs to be sussed, uh, analyzed, and figured out. Obviously, he can't mean this in a literal... Now, he was just talking about the flesh, the flesh of the bloodline, the DNA, the race of Israel. That's what he's been talking about here, confirming that the covenants only apply to this one particular group of people of the Adamic race. Verses 1 through 5 absolutely confirm that. So what's he saying here? Well, remember, the context in which Paul was teaching was that the Messiah had come. So he just told these people that he's addressing here in Rome, whether they be Judahites or Israelites of the dispersion, standing around amongst the Judahites, that the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. Who else but Israel would be expecting a Messiah? These words would be utterly meaningless if he were speaking to non-Israelites. They would be saying, Messiah? What's a Messiah? I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what is a Messiah? Oh, well, that Messiah was promised to Israel. Oh, well, we're not Israelites. So, okay, goodbye. Uh, we'll leave these Israelites to discuss their problems among themselves. That's what. That's the type of reaction that a non-Israelite would have had if Paul was trying to preach to it. So verse 6 again, not as though the word of God has taken on. He's saying the word of God has not been in vain. It has been fulfilled. That's what he's saying right there. The word of God has not been spoken in vain. It has not been, it has not failed to take effect. So then there's only one group of people to whom it can take effect in. And that's us. So his next statement, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, can only be taken in the context of those who have accepted Yahshua Messiah as their Messiah and those who have not. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, I don't know about the rest of the Judeo-theological world. But here's a, a guy who has written, written a book about this single phrase, not all Israel is Israel. And the author is Larry D. Harper, published in 2009. And he, this is what he has to say. 
This is the first in a four-volume series. So, <laughs> four volumes on this subject. Not, not all is Israel is Israel. What could that possibly mean? This is the first in a four-volume series titled the Resurrection Theology Series. This volume examines the meaning and significance of the Hebrew idiom cut off from. This idiom is used extensively in the Old Testament to point to the fact that God continually cut off from corporate Israel. That's the fleshly bodies of the Israelites and no other people. Those individual members of corporate Israel who were not pleasing to him or who won't obey his laws. Not all Israel is Israel explains the significance of this fact as it relates to Jesus Christ and the Jews, obviously the Israelites, to Yahshua and Israel. The title is taken from Romans 9.6 where the Apostle Paul talks about his understanding of who is and who is not a member of corporate Israel, the heir of the promise God gave Abraham. Okay? Well, corporate Israel is the author's insertion here, and it does not apply to Romans 9.6. So let me go back there and explain to you why. Not as though the word of God has taken an effect. So he's saying, no, the, the word of God has fully taken effect. The promises were made to Israel and to no other people, but some of those Israelites did not want to accept the promised Messiah. That is what Paul is saying. And he's saying that those Israelites, not that their race has changed, or that the message should be delivered to non-Israelites, Paul is saying no such thing. He's saying that some Israelites have failed to do their part of accepting the bargain between Yahweh and his people because they have failed to accept Yahshua. And that includes a lot of the Judahites, mainly Judahites, because the Judahites were very jealous of the fact that they were keeping the, the sacrificial laws for all of these generations. And they looked down their noses at the at the Israelites of the dispersion who hadn't been keeping these laws, they said, well, huh, well, they haven't been keeping the laws. They don't deserve to be forgiven for their sins at Calvary. Well, how about you, Judah? Have you accepted, <laughs> have you accepted your terms of the contract that you are to accept the Messiah who came to forgive your sins? If you don't accept him as your Messiah, then your sins are not forgiven. That's what Paul is saying. He's in no way, shape, or form is Paul saying that the covenants and promises have been given to any other people. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. Okay, so it's not good enough. What he's saying here, it's not good enough to be of the race of Israel There's more. You have to qualify in another way. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He's speaking a purely racial message here with the caveat being that unless you accept Yahshua Messiah as your Messiah, then you're not really an Israelite. I mean, you're excluding yourself. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He's quoting the Old Testament again. Genesis 21, 12. So not only are you an Adamite, an Abrahamite, you're a Saxon. He's, he's reciting the genealogy. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Okay, so who are the children of the flesh? What's he talking about here? Those who still adhere to the ritual sacrifices. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Okay? The seed. That's still the same racial term. The offspring. And the Greek word there is sperma. 
I have never heard of spiritual sperm. <laughs> so <laughs> Paul is not spiritualizing the message here, folks. He is not spiritualizing the message. Yet that's all the churches do is spiritualize the obviously literal. And this is what we have to contend with. So let's continue. So that that author of uh, All Israel not Is Not Israel is close when he says that some Israelites are not pleasing to God. Yeah. And that certainly is part of what Paul is intending to say. Well, that, that certain Israelites are not pleasing to God. Well, certain Israelites aren't pleasing to Jesus. Why? Because they have not accepted him as the Messiah. They wanted to continue practicing the ritual sacrifices. But it's obvious that once the Lamb of God has appeared, those sacrifices are no longer necessary. Come on, you stupid Judahites. How can you not understand this? That's what Paul is saying. Come on, you you brain-dead Judahites. Listen to me. The Messiah has come, and you don't need to practice those stupid rituals anymore. Well, before before they were put it into, they weren't stupid. They were a teaching mechanism, so that the Israelites would learn the lessons of obedience. Right? Learn the lessons of what they never did. They hardly ever did, and we still haven't learned them even today. So, so he, uh, getting back to uh, Mr. Compton, let me repeat what he says here. To be sure, Paul begins a section noting that election depends on grace, not race. Romans 9, 6 to 13. No, it does not eliminate the concept of race. The verses we just quoted, virtually every single one of them accentuates that you have to be of the race of Israel. He is not excluding. This is not a mutually exclusive deal. Grace is not mutually exclusive from race. It's race plus grace. That's what Paul is saying. It's race plus grace. You have to be an Israelite to inherit the kingdom. If you're not an Israelite, you cannot inherit the kingdom. You cannot inherit the promises. They were not intended for any other people. Paul in no way, shape, or form denies this or contradicts it. And he makes this astonishing claim here. However, he never says, he never says that the promises are based on race. Well, that's absolutely false. All you have to do is read the verses I just read to confirm that Paul is talking about the racial Israelites. Period. He's not talking about anything else. So this is a blatantly false statement by the author. So let's continue with uh, Romans chapter 9 and find out what uh, Paul is really saying here. Okay. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, those who adhere to the rituals, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And the seed here is a racial term. He's, uh, again, sperma. <laughs> He's talking about the physical Israelites. And, and Mr. Compton says, no, Paul is not talking about race. The hell he isn't. Who are the children of the promise? It's the Israelites and none other. Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will, will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, he's talking about physical Adamites, the pre-Israelites, Abraham and Sarah, the grandparents of Jacob. And he has already cited Isaac, Jacob's father, literal, in the flesh, father. 
And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, <laughs> who in the world could say our father Isaac? Unless you want to spiritualize this phrase also. And what would a spiritual Isaac be? What would it mean? What does a Judeo-Christian mean by a spiritual father Isaac? That does refer to Isaac. And what did Isaac teach? Obedience to the law. Obedience to the racial laws. That's what Isaac taught. That's what Abraham taught. That's what Jacob taught. So even if you try to spiritualize this verse, you can only come to one conclusion, namely that the New Testament and the Old Testament both have only one object, and that is to confirm the covenants. That's the only, the only possible sense that Paul could be read here. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left, so let me just continue with Paul here. And for this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now he's comparing the birth of Isaac to the birth of Christ here, because it was a miraculous birth. Remember, uh, Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90, and uh, you know the, the days before Noah's flood, when people lived a thousand years, they were gone. And uh, it was considered a miracle for Sarah to have a child at age 90. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, this is all literal racial language, genetic language, folks. Seed line language. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Again, he's referring, what, to the works of the ritual sacrifices. He's not talking about good works in any way, shape, or form. Because the fact is that Abraham, when he went to sacrifice Isaac, was performing a work. And he was given, he was proclaimed righteous for going through that pantomime of sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar. But that pantomime foresaw, foreshadowed the coming of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is very important stuff for the covenant message. This is confirming the covenant message. Now, it's very interesting. I have literally scoured the Old Testament to find uh, prophecies made to Abraham that uh, a Redeemer would come. And I really, uh, maybe, maybe Brother Eber. Uh, who's been doing a ton of research in this area as well, has found a verse that literally states to Abraham that his seed will have a redeemer. But I haven't found any such statement made to Abraham. But this, this act by Abraham of sacrificing Isaac on the altar was a foreshadowing of the coming of our Messiah. So Paul is saying that the promise of a Messiah to Israel and to, and of course the rest, restorer of our entire race was come through Abraham. So this pantomime act, it, Paul is referring to this specifically as being the act, the statement, the set in stone prophecy that Israel would have a redeemer. Okay, now, maybe some verses have been lost from the Old Testament where such a statement was made, a direct statement was made to Abraham, but I have not been able to find it. This is it, folks. This, the, the sacrifice of Isaac on the altar, is what Paul is saying is the confirmation of the, the, the promise made to Abraham and, of course, de, uh, confirmed by Yeshua.
And then he goes on, more proof that Mr. Compton's analysis is ter- terribly wrong. It was said unto her, that is Rebecca, the elder shall serve the younger. Oh, I think I missed verse 11. Let me read that one. For the children, let me read the whole thing. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Okay? So, all of the ritual sacrifices that you made in the interim, you Israelites have made, you Judahites have made in the interim, are not dependent upon that all those ritual sacrifices don't guarantee that you will be called and saved i.e. redeemed at Calvary none of that matters because the promise was made to Abraham's offspring through Isaac through Isaac and Jacob so since that since that promise was made before the mosaic law was given The Mosaic Law does not even count. The promise was given to all 12 tribes, and it stands. The election stands, not of works, but of him that calleth. And who called us? Yahweh. Then, verse 12, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Okay, who was the elder? Mr. Compton, the elder, was Esau. And if you know your Old Testament, you will understand that Esau served Jacob in the flesh. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, has that changed? Has Yahweh suddenly come to fall in love with the Edomites? I don't think so. So certainly... You must exclude, Mr. Compton, you must exclude the Edomites, who are the very people you call Jews, whom you falsely believe to be Israelites. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. But Mr. Compton and all of the other universalists and antinomians of Judeo-Christianity would have to say, yeah, God is being unrighteous because he's excluding people that I, a universalist, want to include. Hmm. So if you deny what Paul is saying here, then you are denying that God is faithful and true. That's what you're saying. You don't want to accept the fact that the covenants are exclusive and you would like to have Jews, the modern day Jews, be saved. That's like the only thing on their minds. Oh, the Jews, they have to be saved. They have to accept Christ. Sorry, that ain't happening. That's never going to happen. That's a pipe dream, Mr. Compton. A 100% pipe dream. I wish I could invite Mr. Compton to my home and explain these two things to him and do the word studies with him to prove to him that his understanding, again, I say it's not his fault that he has this understanding, that a lot of deception has gone into this narrative that has caused Mr. Compton to believe the false statements that he makes. That really is what's going on here, folks. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so let's continue. There is no unrighteousness with God. But yet, the Judeos are accusing God, Yahweh, of unrighteousness because he has no intention of saving Edomites or any other people. They will get a blessing if they support us, but they will not inherit the covenants. Remember, a covenant is an exclusive contract 
between the party of the first part and the party of the second part with the intercessor and the mediator of the covenant being Yeshua Messiah. And what did he say? I come not but unto the exiled sheep of the house of Israel. And even those Judahites in Rome were exiled sheep because they, they left. They weren't kicked out by Yahweh necessarily, but they left of their own accord because of all of the fighting that was going on in Israel because of the invasion of the Greek army and, and even the uh, Babylonians. A lot of the Israelites, the Judahites of Judea decided to, to flee and just leave rather than have to deal with all of this conquest by invading armies. And this was going on for a very long time, very long time. Well, even before, well, actually before the invasion of the Assyrians of the 10 northern tribes, a lot of those Israelites got on their ships and left. They left Palestine and moved to Europe. They moved to England. They moved to Ireland, Scotland, France, Spain. The original name of Spain is Iberia, land of the Hebrews. So you have to do the word studies to understand what Paul is saying here, and you have to ditch these modern words, and the word adoption is a problem also, because that that word adoption suggests the possibility. It doesn't say it. It only suggests the possibility because people today adopt people of other races, children of other races, but there's no way an Israelite would have done that. No way. That's utterly forbidden in our law. Okay? And Paul was speaking to Israelites, especially Israelites who, the Judaists who just come out of, uh, you know, the Old Testament rituals, now having to make a decision whether or not to continue in those rituals or not, and the dispersed Israelites who also had to be convinced that the Messiah had come. And it actually was easier to preach to the to the dispersed Israelites than to the Judahites, because the Judahites were intent on preserving the rituals. They lived and died with these rituals for 1,500 years. You expect us to give that up now at the snap of a finger? Yes, <laughs> because as Paul says, Yahshua was the last sacrifice. Okay? All right, folks, I hope I have done a credible job. I was hoping to have Pastor Martins uh, you know, expound on this uh, along with me. But there is no way that Mr. Compton is correct that Paul wants to include non-Israelites in the covenants. Paul says absolutely no such thing. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time. Bye-bye.